turn in our Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 886. We've been in Revelation, but now we're jumping into another book that John wrote. Scott Swain uh, is the president of RTS in Orlando, Florida, uh, but he has a small book. It's called The Trinity, an introduction. And in it, he focuses on the patterns of naming the triune God in Scripture. Before he gets there, though, he outlines uh, three major goals for for doing theology, and I would commend them to you. We do theology first to make us more fluent readers of Holy Scripture. The Holy Spirit then uses Scripture to form in us the image of Jesus Christ. And then theology also promotes our fellowship with God Himself. God being the sovereign good that we pursue in doing theology. So the goals of theology then, he says, are fluency in Scripture, formation into Christ-likeness, and fellowship with God. Now, I want to pursue those same goals today. We will study the first few verses of John's Gospel, and I want you to become fluent in understanding the claims that John makes about Jesus Christ. More than that, I want the Holy Spirit to form in us the image of Jesus. One of the things that the incarnation should form in us is humility, and we'll talk some about that. But ultimately, I want you to enjoy fellowship with God. Our brother Brian has felt a tumor growing in his lungs. Our sister Debbie has been walking closely with her daughter who ha- that's battling leukemia. Uh, our sister Anne is helping Jean as various illnesses have weakened his body. Another sister learned hard news about lymphoma this past week. Others of you face hardships in marriage or with wayward children. Some of you suffer under a dark cloud due to the consequences of sin. Maybe it's your own or other sins committed against you. Some of you feel weary of all that has to be done. Maybe others of you will have an empty seat at the table this afternoon one that you wish would have been filled by a loved one. Thank God that we're not left to all of these things alone. God is with us. He is with us in joy. He is with us in cancer. He is with us in suffering. He is with us at work and at home. In Jesus... We have Emmanuel, which means God 
with us. That's the name that Matthew's gospel gives to Jesus. John's gospel begins with a different name. The Word. The Word. And his goal is fellowship with God. John states his purpose very clearly in cha- towards the end of his, his gospel in chapter 20, verse 31. He says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's the fellowship with God. That you may have life in his name. But to help you know God and experience life with God, John begins with a story about the Word. I'll begin reading it in John chapter 1, verse 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. John begins his story with the word. Now, some have taken this title as a shot against various Greek philosophies, which use the term logos, or word, to explain how the universe works. Others will look to first century wisdom literature, only to say that John is is upping the stakes here when it comes to Jesus, and both of these comparative literatures have their place for historical contrast. 
But plenty of evidence within the gospel itself shows that John's backdrop is the Old Testament if we want to understand what he means by the Word. In the Old Testament, God's Word creates. If you think back to Genesis 1-1 when he says, let there be light. And so also here in chapter 1, we read in verse 3 that the Word creates. God's Word also enacts His purpose to redeem the world in the Old Testament. So also here in chapter 1, verse 14. God's Word also reveals who God is. So also here in chapter 1, verse 18. He has made Him known. So repeatedly, whether God's Word is creating or redeeming or revealing, what we see in the Old Testament is that His Word is God's self-revelation. But here we're seeing that that self-revelation reaches its summit in the Word who becomes flesh. That's why verse 17 says, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The point isn't that grace and truth were never known before Jesus came into the world. Rather, God's covenant love and faithfulness revealed in the law word has now reached its apex in Jesus, the word made flesh. But before the word becomes flesh, what do we learn about him? Well, we learn first of the words eternal existence. The words eternal existence. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. John alludes to those famous words from Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But unlike the heavens and the earth, which came into being, the Word simply was, it says. The Word never had a beginning. He never came into existence. He just was. Now, a man named Arius once argued, and some still argue this way today, that verse 1 means he preceded creation, but not that he was eternal. But the immediate context shows otherwise, doesn't it? Verse 2 and 3, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So John has just painted the entire universe into two categories. You have the maker, and you have everything else that was made. Everything fits in one of those two categories. You have the maker, and then anything that was made. Inner, uh, matter, energy, angels, galaxies, giraffes, frogs, subatomic particles, anything that was made. And John is saying the word belongs in the maker category. 
Children sometimes will ask, where did God come from? Well, he didn't come from anywhere, we tell them. He didn't get to be God. He just is. Everything else came from him. And John is putting the word in that category, the creator category. Now, to be clear, verse 14 will show us that Jesus' human nature did come into being. But John's point in verse 1 is careful. Before there was anything made, the word simply was. And then second, we learn of the words personal communion with God the Father. The words personal communion with God the Father. Verse, verse 1 again. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. He was with God. Now, in John's writing, the, the title God, especially when you have the, the definite article with it in, in the Greek, it refers regularly to God the Father. That's who's in view here alongside the Word. Verse 14 will clarify this relationship further. You will notice, if you drop your eyes to verse 14, that Jesus is the only Son from the Father. And then look at verse 18. It also helps us. He is the Son, he calls him, who is at the Father's side, or some of your older translations say, in the Father's bosom, right? Or later, if you turn with me to chapter 17 for a minute, John chapter 17, where Jesus' own prayer gives us a couple more clues here as to what's going on in John 1. Chapter 17, verse 5. Jesus is praying and he says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So when we read, and the word was with God, we're seeing a personal distinction between the word and God the Father. And since the word had no beginning, we must, uh, he, he must exist in eternal relation to the Father. But listen again to the way Jesus speaks of that relationship. Uh, again, in chapter 17, verse 5, you know, we, we already read that he had a glory with the Father before the world existed. But then look at chapter 17, verse 24. Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they, speaking of his disciples, they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. This is Jesus' prayer for you and me. That they may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What was God doing before he created everything? Loving himself. God's love for us had a beginning. But we can never say the Father's love for the Son had a beginning. The Word or the Son forever exists in a relationship of love with his Father. 
And what Jesus brings out in his prayer is that this eternal divine love expresses itself in mutual glorification. The Father clothes the Son in glory because the Son, who images the Father's glory, is his delight. That helps us understand what John is saying when he says, and the Word was with God. The true God is a relational being, which makes him very different from, say, the single-person God of Islam. Islam teaches that Allah is a solitary monad with unity only. He has no need of a son, they say. He cannot be a relational being, they say. But if God is a monad, he can't be truly loving. Love is something one person has for another. Allah actually needs man to fight for his cause in order to express love. So when the Quran says Allah is loving, the language of love is really disguising tyranny and neediness. But the God of Christianity needs nobody to express love. The Father loves His Son quite apart from creation, which should amaze us that He chooses to love us. This should amaze you that Jesus prays that we would be able to be with Him where He is, right? should amaze us that he chooses to love us, rebels as we are, and bring us into this love. That's why Jesus prayed the way he did and died the way he did, to bring us to God who is love, even to enjoy the glory resulting from the Father's love for his own Son. Third, we learn of the words divine nature as God. His divine nature as God. He's implied this already in the first phrase of verse 1, but now he's getting explicit at the end of verse 1. He says, and the Word was God. So according to verse 1, the Word is both distinct in person from the Father and one with the Father in divinity or godness. Unless, of course, you choose to translate the verse as Jehovah's Witnesses do. Jehovah's Witnesses have the New World Translation. Uh, Unitarians will do the same. If you look at John 1.1 in their translation, it says, And the Word was a God. He was divine-like, angelic perhaps, but he definitely wasn't the God according to these other religions. However, you already know that can't be a good translation from verse 3. Angelic beings were made. Anything less than God was made. And the Word wasn't made. He fits in the God category. He's not just a God. He is the Creator God. Verse 18 also helps. 
No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So there too, the word is distinct in person. He's at the Father's side. And as the only God, He possesses what's divine. So the context helps you. But if you want a little extra assurance alongside those observations, in the Greek, the word God at the end of verse 1 is best understood qualitatively. Okay? As I said before, when God appears with the article in Greek, it normally refers to God the Father. But John, interestingly, drops the article here and he orders the sentence to preserve the personal distinction he just made. You see, if he kept the article, his next statement would mean that the word was the Father. But that's not what he wants to say. So he drops the article and he orders the sentence to assert something about the Son's nature rather than his identity. Here's an easy, easier way to, to paraphrase verse 1. If you think about it like this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God the Father. And what God the Father was, that the Word was too. That's how they would have heard it. What God the Father was, namely God, that the Word was too. That's the gist. The Spirit, speaking through John, maintains the personal distinction between Father and Son as well as affirming their divine essence. That's why Christians confess that God is Trinity. One God and three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, though we won't touch on, on the Spirit today. You need to understand this to know God as He really is. Christians are baptized in the one name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The triune God is our confession from the very beginning of our faith. Any teaching that doesn't recognize the Trinity or doesn't confess Jesus as God isn't true. Folks say they accept Jesus all, all the time. I mean, Jesus, believe it or not, is a really popular guy in our culture. But if they aren't willing to call Him God and worship Him, then they don't know the true Jesus. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a great quote. I'll, I'll uh, read it. I think it's spot on. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, 
You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Such good words. Knowing this, though, should astound us when we get to verse 14. The Word became flesh. It's one of the most remarkable sentences in Scripture. John writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, let me clarify what that does not mean. Okay, some people will go to Philippians 2, which would be a great passage to help us understand what it means for Jesus to take on flesh. But they will go to Philippians 2, and they will read, you read it earlier in the service, though Christ was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And they'll take that phrase, emptied himself, and say something like this. The Son of God renounced some of his divine attributes in order to become human. And that's not right. That's not true. For several reasons. It truncates the Son's deity for starters. I mean, if God the Son renounces any divine attribute, he's no longer God. It also mistakes the person of the Son in Philippians 2 for his divine nature. Meaning the self-emptying in Philippians 2 isn't an emptying of what's divine. The self-emptying has to do with what Paul goes on to talk about in the same verse. By taking the form of of a servant. That's the self-emptying. He takes the form of a servant or slave. So the remarkable point of Philippians 2 is that this one who, who forever and always exists in the form of God, that one, he sets aside his rights to be seen as God and he assumes the form of a servant while still being God. Okay, baby in the manger, yes and amen, while upholding the universe by the word of his power. So nothing has changed in his divine nature when he took on flesh. That makes the sun's humility shine all the more brightly. Glorious God the Son, creator of all things, worthy of all worship, and yet this one, who should be praised by every human on earth, he becomes their slave and stoops and does things like wash their feet. Nobody sees his veiled glory, but he serves them anyway, and he does it even unto death on a cross for us. So when John says the word became flesh, he doesn't mean the word forfeited or limited any of his godness. 
He means the word added to himself a human nature such that he's now truly God and truly man, not deity turned into man, not man swallowed up by deity, but one person with two natures, truly God and truly man. That's also why John says the word became flesh and he, it says he dwelt among us. That word dwelt there. Some of you, some of you know this. I can see you're shaking your heads already. It's, it has the idea of t- God spreading his tabernacle in our midst. It's using language from when God dwelled with the people in the Exodus in the tabernacle. And that, you know, Moses could go out in the camp and he see the glory cloud filling the tabernacle. And John is saying that when Jesus, when God, the son, became man, when he took to himself a human nature, he could look at Jesus and see the glory of God filling Jesus. He could see the glory of God revealed through everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did. And he could see the glory of God go on display at the cross and in the resurrection and the ascension. Everything about Jesus put the glory of God on display to the point, he says, this has to be the only son from the Father. That's an amazing mystery the gospel confronts us with. And it is a claim that makes Christianity unique. Our God is is unlike the God of Islam, who can't be closely involved with creation. He's unlike the God of Docetism, who can only disguise himself as a human. He's unlike the God of deism, who doesn't make himself known to us. He's unlike the God of so many other religions who requires man to work his way up to God. No, Christianity teaches that our God condescends to us. Our God comes down. He makes himself known. He enters the world we made. He is high, but he also draws near. He identifies with our humanity. He becomes one of us to save us from our desperate predicament. That's the gospel order that we see in the incarnation. Not man working his way up to God. Not man becoming a God. But God coming down to save man. And when God the Son comes down in the person of Jesus, we can know God. That's why John finishes the introduction here with, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. If you want someone who tells the whole story about God, you don't look any further than Jesus Christ. You don't look to a Muhammad or to a Joseph Smith, or to an angel from heaven, and you don't even listen, you don't don't even look to your favorite preacher. You look to Jesus Christ. Knowing God is not a mystery. He's not hiding from you. He's given the written word, and he has sent the living word. If you're searching for God, look no further than Jesus Christ. To know Jesus is to know God. If you don't know God, the problem isn't that God is far away. Rather, it is that sin is keeping you from seeing His glory. That's how John puts it in the rest of the passage. 
if you look back up to verse 5, he compares the world to darkness. Right? He says the light shines in the darkness, and that darkness and throughout the rest of the gospel, we learn, is the context of this world that's full of sin and in rebellion against God. It's the whole of humanity that is walking in moral darkness. The moral darkness is so bad that people don't even recognize their maker. Look at verse 10. It says that he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. Why? Why didn't they receive him? Well, as we read, we go on and read the gospel in chapter 3, verse 19, it's because they love their evil deeds and they don't want to come to the light. In chapter 8, verse 34, they are slaves to sin. In chapter 8, verse 44, their father is the devil and they believe his lies. In chapter 5, verse 44, they love the praise of men. And it's because they love the praise of men, they they cannot see Jesus remain, uh, God, God's glory and Jesus remains veiled to them. So it's this moral darkness, this moral depravity that keeps people from seeing God in Jesus. But we also see in verse 12 that if if you believe in Jesus... If you take Jesus at his words and what he says about himself and what he's done for you, if you embrace, for example, Jesus' claim to be God, and it says he gives you the right to become children of God. That's why he became flesh. He took on humanity so that through the cross he would make those who weren't God's children, God's children. In Jesus, we come to know the true God. So believe in Jesus. Believe that He is God who came to save you. And you know what? He will bring you to be with Him together with the Father. And you will enjoy that fellowship with God. But one more thing I want to leave us here, uh, leave us with today. Consider how the words humble descent compels our our humility. History knows of no greater condescension than God the Son becoming man. He set aside His right to be seen as as glorious and even become a servant. The Son didn't cling to the place of honor, though He could have. He willingly forfeits the rights to serve our eternal good. Philippians 2 takes the incarnation and he applies that to the Christian. And he says that, he says, uh, so before we, the passage we read a while ago, that he didn't count, consider the uh, equality with God a thing to be grasped and held onto, but emptied himself. Right before that, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, 
didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. See, this is why I think it's valuable when we talked at the beginning about theology being not just for fluency in the Scripture, but also formation into Christ's likeness. We see, Christ, we see Paul doing that very thing, taking the doctrine of the incarnation and forming into the church humility. Right? Here he goes. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what's supposed to cultivate this, this mind that considers the interests of others better than our own. The glory of the Son's incarnation motivates the church to serve the interests of others. So how is it motivating you? J.I. Packer has a great quote to read at this time of year. Uh, this is from his book, Knowing God. He says, We talk glibly of the, of the Christmas spirit, rarely meaning more by this than sentimental jollity on a family basis. But what we have said makes it clear that the phrase should in fact carry tremendous weight of meaning. It ought to mean the reproducing in human lives of the temper of him who for our sakes became poor at the first Christmas. And the Christmas spirit itself ought to be the mark of every Christian all the year round. It is our shame and disgrace today that so many Christians, I will be more specific, so many of the soundest and most orthodox Christians Go through this world in the spirit of the priest and the Levite in our Lord's parable, seeing human needs all around them, but after pious wish and perhaps a prayer that God might meet those needs, they avert their eyes and pass by on the other side. That is not the Christmas spirit. Nor is it the spirit of those Christians, and they are many, whose ambition in life seems limited to building a nice middle-class Christian home and making nice middle-class Christian friends and bringing up their children in nice middle-class Christian ways and who leave the sub-middle-class sections of the community, Christian and non-Christian, to get on by themselves. The Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christian snob, for the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor to enrich their fellow humans, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others and not just to their own friends in whatever way there seems need. See the end of the quote. What does that humble spirit look like when you look around the room at your church family? What does it look like with your spouse? What does it look like with your children, with your parents, with your employees? What's it look like towards your students? Can, can they see the mind of Christ producing a temperament of self-emptying to serve another's well-being? 
Consider the affront that Jesus' humility is to the world's vision of strength. The world's vision of strength is, uh, is usually domination. Right? That's why we all beat our chests at the touchdown or the, when they sack the quarterback or, or whatever else. But what do we find in Jesus? He's the king of the world, and yet he stoops down to serve the world. He doesn't assert his power at the expense of others. He uses his power to serve and to save others. Consider how the humility of Jesus informs the way we we go about our mission. Christianity does not advance the gospel by, for example, taking the lives of others. Christ's kingdom is not of this world and its success does not depend on physical strength or military power or political one-upmanship. Christ's kingdom advances through humble means like compassionate gospel preaching and suffering in the path of servant-hearted love. Or consider what humility looks like when, uh, with your neighbors. Humbling ourselves will mean looking for opportunities to serve them. It will mean leaving the comforts of your home to meet them or perhaps inviting them into your home to feed them or to adopt them. Humility takes up the life of another with all of its messiness and with all of its great needs and it makes it our own. Wherever you may be, Growing in humility will not come by looking to yourself. All right, self, just going to do better at humility this week. It doesn't come by merely changing a few behaviors or making a new list. Growing in humility will only come when we take long looks at Jesus Christ when we soak in a passage like John 1 or Philippians 2 and learn to rejoice in the ways that He has come for us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Have you seen His glory? It is a glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He has come for you. Whatever you're facing today, whatever dark cloud that sits on your home, whatever struggle that you may be going through, whatever suffering lies ahead in 2023, whatever mess it is that is us, God has not left us without hope. He willingly stepped into your world He willingly came to experience what you experience, and He did it without sin, so that you may have life in His name. As we come to the supper, I want you to savor these wonderful truths again. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father.
full of grace and truth. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would form Christ in us. That we may be humble servants of our King. That we may reflect what our King is like. Thank you for sending him into the world. Thank you for his death on the cross and his resurrection. Thank you that through him we have fellowship with you. You are all we need. You are our portion and our strength. Amen.